All right, guys. Um, before we get started, if you haven't already, there's a couple handouts. One has uh, what we affectionately call the Kleinian submarine. This is uh, one rendition of a, uh, a graph that Professor Klein would draw on board every class. And uh, I got to say, this is a lot more detailed and clear. Uh, who, who knew what Professor Klein was ever actually saying when he drew those things? Uh, but it, it, it stuck. Um, the other one, of course, is uh, sort of just a, instead of me trying to give a bunch of Bible verses over here, which I'm inclined to do, I just kind of gave you a relative outline to keep you tracking with me. Um, I've been assigned to teach the task of covenant theology. And I've been given an hour and a half, and I've been given one day. So, um, let me just say we're not going to plumb all the depths, but I hope that this is, this is a taste for uh, an essential way of understanding scripture. Uh, some like myself would say, you know, the fundamental way, there's, there's different arguments. How do we, is there like a central door whereby we enter scripture and understand all things, right? Luther would say justification, right? The, the door on which the hinges of the church turn. Uh, some people would say Covenant theology, I'm inclined towards that one. There's a lot of different ways in which we could try to say that there's this, you know, this one thing that gives you the big picture of uh, the Bible. Um, but we're going to go with the kingdom of God, right? The idea, and what I'm going to be unpacking today in some detail, um, some of you think more, more than enough, some of you think will be it's exhausting, some of you will be like, I need to know more, right? Um, the idea is we're looking at how does heaven come to earth, right? The kingdom that we're talking about is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, what you know Jesus talks about in all the gospels, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, their synonyms. How does that work? And so we're going to look at you know the way in which, from a bird's eye view, um, God communicates uh, his heavenly kingdom and brings his heavenly kingdom down, right? So we're going to look at that... Uh, outside of time and space history in the mind of God, but then also in redemptive history, how God acts upon us and introduces himself to us in different ways. So just sort of unpack this, which I might, may or may not be referring to a bit through the class. Uh, you know, here is heaven, the eternal realm of God, and it's, you know, bookended by infinity signs, right? God dwelling in his glory. And then we see, of course, that there's this idea of theocracy, Right? That God dwells with his people and that his law is ultimate and he reigns amongst his people. And we see that in the garden. We see that in Israel. And we see that ultimately in heaven, that heaven comes down in its fullness at a day. Now, of course, this day, of course, is the last day. Now, there's going to be a whole lot of covenantal action going on to make that come to pass. But what I want to say and what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the Shorter Catechism number 12, which talks about the covenant of works. And we're going to look at Shorter Catechism 20, which talks about the covenant of grace. And we're going to see that, you know, in God's way of dealing with people, there's a covenant of works given in the garden. We know that's a failure. There's, you know, a covenant of grace that is started, right? And that covenant of grace is the only means whereby people are redeemed, period, full stop. Okay. Whether they are Abrahamic covenant, whether it's Mosaic, whether it's David, whether it's the new covenant, we're all talking about the stuff of the Abrahamic covenant, which we call, the confession we're going to see calls it the second covenant or the covenant of grace. Along with that is this idea of a common grace covenant. That is, 
God is going to make it so that there is a ground out of which his elect can sprout, right? We have that whole idea that there will be a last day, and on that last day, they're going to separate the wheat from the tares, that that will be the day of judgment. And that's when we're going to, you know, really, God's going to really mix it up, right? But until then, this is the day of common grace, where the gospel is preached, where people are called, right? And that's, you know, the age of the church. That's what's going on in Abraham's time. Even in Israel, they're supposed to be a sign to the world, you know, to draw people to themselves. One last thing. With Israel in the theocracy, notice that I have the covenant of grace here, but then I've got some covenant of works principles involved. We've got this little green lines there. And that's what we're going to be seeing is that, yes, with Israel, God didn't need to save Israel. He saves them as a holy people. However, the promises of the land, those are all those are hedged in by uh, an if, right? If you keep my covenant. And if you don't, I'm going to do to you what... You know, I did to all the nations that we kicked out in Canaan, right? So that's sort of a, a broad overview of the Kleinian submarine. And more importantly, I think it's the, the biblical teaching on several covenants. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll jump into this and see how we do. Father, we give thanks that you love a people and that you have uh, decided upon redeeming them, even when we're stubborn, even when... Uh, we kick at the goads. How we thank you that you persevere. You send your spirit and uh, you, you, you gather a people for yourselves. And how we thank you, Father, that it's a, a people that it's of every tongue and tribe and nation. And Father, that's the church's job to go out into the world everywhere and preach the gospel to all creatures. So, Father, as we're here tonight, uh, enable and uh, enthrall us with that vision that you are gathering people has nothing to do with us, but everything to do with you, and that uh, people can find freedom and solace and comfort in a God that does all things uh, for their redemption. We love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, perhaps a good part when we start talking about covenant theology is ask the question, what is the problem with humanity? Okay? What is the problem? And the fact of the matter is, everybody thinks there's a problem with humanity, right? No, I mean, we do. Whether you're a secularist, whether you're an atheist, whether you're a Christian, you know, I mean, right now, the, the big meta-narrative for people who spent 50 years saying meta-narratives suck is the meta-narrative is the big story that explains all things is the cataclysmic reality of global warming, right? And cert certainly there's something to be concerned about, climate-related issues in terms of pollution. Sure, I think we could probably get on board with some of that, pollution-related issues. But that is, that is an explanation of why things suck, right? Everybody has that. But within the Christian tradition, there's two basic flavors, um, and we'll start with the Catholic flavor. And I, I might have given you guys some notes on that. Yeah, the Catholic flavor is what we could call a nature and grace theology. For the Roman Catholic, they would say, Adam is made good, sure, certainly. But Adam was not perfectible in the garden apart from divine grace. So for the Roman Catholic, Adam, yeah, he's supposed to obey God. Yeah, he's made good. But at the end of the day, Thomas would say that, uh, I'm sorry, St. Thomas Aquinas would say that, uh, you know, nature is perfected by grace. Adam couldn't be perfected just by obeying God and doing what God calls him to do. Rather, he needed a, a jumpstart of grace, right? Okay, 
For Reformed people, of course, we have Shorter Catechism 14 describing what sin is. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So as Reformed people, we say, what is sin? Well, it's there's a command of God for someone who's able to obey and keep God's command. And he says, meh, I don't care, right? So in our conception, we understand sin is breaking the law, that is doing what God tells us not to do, but also not doing what the law commands, right? So we're not keeping God's law. So there's very different conceptions of what the problem with humanity is. And at the end of the day, for the Catholic, the problem is kind of this. Man's problem is that he's not God. We, we don't have, you know, it's a nature problem, right? Whereas for Reformed folks and most Protestants, the argument is no, the problem is a moral problem. It's a moral failure. Now, we're going to see this basic uh, temptation to the Roman position pops up a lot. Uh, some, Ro some Protestants have similar concerns. Hey, well, you know, God really didn't need to make Adam. Wasn't that gracious of him? Right? And even within our tradition, there are some people who use language with toys with that, but they don't mean grace, and they don't mean that there's anything wrong with, with Adam. So... We're going to jump into this. Uh, Short Catechism number 12. We can go ahead and read this responsibly if you like. Um, Short Catechism 12, it's uh, number 2 on your handout, followed by Q12. What special act of providence did God exercise toward man in the estate wherein he was created? When God created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. Right. Sort of, uh, Westminster Confession 7.2 says it this way, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works. Notice in the Catechism it says covenant of life. Confession says covenant of works. There's some synonyms. But uh, the first covenant made was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Now, if we go looking through Genesis 1 through 3 in the garden, we're not going to find... Interestingly enough, you look for any mention of grace, there's none of that language. And so that kind of hurts the Roman position, I think. But then also, there's no mention of covenant, and that might hurt our position, right? There's no mention of covenant in Genesis 1 through 3. You're not going to find the word. Uh, it's not there. So that's not helpful. Um, well, but it is, okay? Yes? Ed is getting ahead of the game. Yeah, right, there is grace. Grace is absolutely shown in the garden as they're getting the, the boot, right? Right. But, uh, yeah, no, there, in, in terms of what we'd call the pre-lapsarian state before the fall, there's no mention of grace. But the big proof text where we've traditionally fought on this is Hosea 6-7, okay? Hosea 6-7, of course, uh, I'm looking at the wrong sheet. Here we go. Um, that's why I'm lost. Uh, Hosea 6, 7 uh, reads this. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Now this passage, uh, you know, the Hebrew could be understood different ways. Uh, it's ki adam is the, the expression. And ki is like a prefix, right? And so it, it could be like mankind, right? Sort of generic, like humanity. They've transgressed the covenant. 
And so we got to ask the question, where could the mankind as a whole break a covenant? Well, that would have to happen here. You know, in, uh, it, Adam is the federal representative of all humanity. That's, that could happen, mankind. Only in a garden could man have corporately broken the covenant. Another one is at Adam. There's a city called Adam. At Adam, they've transgressed the covenant. Now, uh, you know, in this case, they take a bet. It's like, whatever, it doesn't matter. Impress you that I don't remember in Hebrew. Uh, um, this could be taken as uh, in. It could be taken as at. In this case, of course, they're taking it at Adam, right? So it's at Adam. Um, that's a possibility linguistically. Joshua three sixteen says the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap, very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethon. So there's a city called Adam. Maybe that could the linguistic possibility. Another possibility, which is weak in my view, is as the ground they've transgressed the covenant, but that's adding a whole nother letter here. There's a there's like a, another letter, it's like a suffix. That's a stretch, okay? Uh, the clearest reading of the text is the traditional one, that like Adam, and that's perfectly, you know, this could be like, and there's none of this, it doesn't exist in the text. So like Adam, they've transgressed the covenant, okay? So that has led lots of people uh, in our tradition to think, hey, that's explicitly talking about a covenant in the garden that Adam broke. Okay, They, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant. Now, personally, my view is, you know, and by the way, it's, it, it is legitimate when you're doing theology and you're dealing with language and there are realistic linguistic options, sometimes let your theology guide that. Okay, you, you do have to ask, well, what does the text mean? And, and, and when we take into account the whole teaching of Scripture, you've got, you've got to make decisions. What, what fits best with the understanding of clearer passages of Scripture? But anyhow, I think that for folks that want to adopt the reading of, uh, you know, like the ground or like the city of Adam, uh, the issue here is they want to deny the covenant of works. And that's a, a common theme that we'll see uh, within some folks in the tradition and outside of it. We already mentioned the, the Roman Catholics. They don't like the idea of coming to works because you need grace right from the get-go, right? You need grace right from the get-go. Well, we shouldn't find this, we shouldn't be surprised at the idea that God dealt with Adam by means of a covenant, for actually God deals with all creation by means of covenant. If you guys were here on Sunday, we looked at Jeremiah 33, right? Jeremiah 33, 20 through 26. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with a day and my covenant with a night, so that the day and night will not come to their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, etc. Point is, God makes covenant with the sun and the moon, right? The covenant with the day and the night. If God is making covenant with creation, wouldn't it stand to reason that he makes a covenant with the pinnacle of creation, the sixth day creation, man made in his very image, right? Okay. Um, so I, I wouldn't, we need not be surprised about God making covenant with Adam in the garden. Here we see that God mentions his covenant with creation, particularly moon and stars and light bears. Where in the Bible do we see God talk about the sun and the moon and the stars as instruments of light? Well, in Genesis 1. If he relates to day and night by covenant, wouldn't he relate to Adam, final capstone of creation, in the same way? Sorry. All right. So thus far we've seen that God made a covenant with Adam. Now we've got to ask what sort of covenant it is, okay? So, you know, uh, 
Hosea seven, six, seven, um, yeah, um, and different covenant language appealing to the use of covenant in the garden is a thing, right? So, okay, there's some sort of covenant in the garden. What's it like? What's the nature of it? Okay, um, the Catechism says it's a covenant of life, wherein Adam had to perfectly obey, and that if he failed, he would die. The confession also calls this a covenant of works. In Genesis 2, there's no explicit mention of a promise of life, only the certainty of death if Adam broke the covenant, right? So we see, you know, the day wherein you eat, you will surely die, right? That's a promise in the text. Um, so are we doing well then to speak of this as a covenant of life or works if it doesn't use explicit language of covenant? And this has led, you know, some people, even in our tradition, really well-known, highly respected people, John Murray, for example. Um, John, John Murray, he's uncomfortable with the language because he doesn't think he can tie it close enough to the text. Okay? Now, in Murray's scheme of things, he's orthodox concerning common grace, special grace, justification. He's solid. But he does have some questions about the, he calls it the Adamic administration. Murray argues that covenant theology needs recasting in his terms. And uh, you know, he didn't have any heretical leanings coming out of that. But lo and behold, his student, Norman Shepard, sure did, right? So a lot of people in the 20th century uh, have really challenged the idea of a covenant of works. And we're going to see why, why is this important? Why am I laboring on it? Well, because the gospel's at stake, okay? The gospel's at stake. We'll get there in a second. Well, my argument tonight is, is essential to maintain this idea of a covenant of works where perfect, personal, perpetual obedience is uh, required of Adam. Okay? So here are the reasons why. And there's a bunch, but we're not going to hit them all. Uh, first, let's remember that God made Adam upright, completely righteous. Remember in Ecclesiastes 7.29, right? Uh, the preacher says, see, this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. We look at Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So God looks at the capstone of his creation, all of his creation, he proclaims, it's tov, it's good, it's all good, right? Okay. So in the midst of that good creation... Adam had the law of God written in his being. And we even see, you know, Paul arguing in Romans 2 that the law of God is written on our conscience, even to this day, right? That sinners, we still have, I would argue, the covenant of works baked into our being, right? Think about that. As Christians, we're always critical, you know, as people who understand and love the covenant of grace when we talk to Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and other people and, more, and Muslims, we're always talking to them about you're only saved by grace, right? Well, why do we have to tell them that so much? Because they're saying there's a covenant of works and I need to obey God and make him happy. That's baked into the cake of humanity. And for those who want to deny the reality of the covenant of works here, what you always end up doing is imputing the idea of the covenant of works somewhere in here. And we'll unpack that as we go through the evening. Okay. So that idea that baked into our being, we have uh, the necessity to obey God. For Adam, obeying God came naturally to him. Sinless life was natural to Adam. And in this situation, God gives Adam a probationary command that would test whether he would be faithful to God or not. 
Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So there's the you know prohibition and the consequence, you will die, right? That's clear in the text. Notice that in verse 15, Adam was given a positive role to play in the garden. He was to work the fields and guard the garden, right? Of course, who's he going to guard the garden from? Well, talking snakes, apparently, right? Creatures like the serpent. Now, what should Adam have done? Well, read a little further in the text. We see what God uses. God brings in, uh, you know, scab labor or alternative laborers because these guys aren't, Adam's not keeping the covenant. He has a cherubim, I believe, or a cherubim, seraphim, one of them, one of the, themes, angel with a flaming sword, right, guarding entrance to the uh, tabernacle, temple, garden, right? And so the idea here is Adam fails, fails to do what? His job of guarding the temple, right? Adam is a temple guardian, and he fails, and of course he dies. But what's the negative command, okay? What was the negative command? Genesis 2.17, but of the truth but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So we see this principle. You eat, you die. Right? Disobey, you die. Obedience to God was in the form of a test, which would confirm him as righteous or condemn him as a sinner. Right? And we know, of course, that it condemns him as a sinner. He does get replaced by this angelic creature with a flaming sword. Right? Um, that, that's, a, that's a thing. Um, the death that was promised to Adam, or the death that was promised if Adam sinned, was not just physical death, right? He does die hundreds of years later. His body kicks on longer than ours. But rather, of course, eternal spiritual death in hell. And it, it does imply also physical death, right? So Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, right? The wages of sin is death. And, and Adam experientially sees that. Suddenly he's transformed. He sees his wife in a way he never saw her before. Right? Um, he's, he's naked. Um, he has kids that kill each other and things like that, right? Well, the question we have here then, it's clear enough that the sanctions and the punishment is clear in the text, but what about this promise of eternal life? A lot of people are uncomfortable with this idea of the covenant of works and the idea of a probationary period, because wherein there does it say that Adam is going to lay hold of the blessings of the kingdom of heaven in the text? It doesn't say it. Well, but it does. It does. Is it not implied then that if he had obeyed, he would have merited heaven? That is eternal life. Remember when we studied Shorter Catechism number one, we saw that man's goal is glory or eternal life, right? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. There's eschatology. There's eternal life baked into that question. Our goal is to love and enjoy God forever in forever land, right? Well, Heaven or glorification is man's goal. This has always been the case. Our goal is to enjoy God's eternal heaven. Whether that's here or here or here, anywhere in redemptive history, that is the goal. That has always been our goal. Glorification. Both before Adam sinned and after. Now, the covenant of works, the goal, of course, was Adam would be perfectly, perpetually obedient at some point, pass his test of probation, and be ushered into heavenly glory, right? 
But of course, in God's good providence, that's not the way he has it worked out. He has us come into that relationship with him through a redeemer, right? But still, that same goal, man's chief end, our greatest goal is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, okay? Man's goal is true life. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When Paul says all have sinned in Romans 3.23, it's the same phrase that he uses in 5.12. 5.12 says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, in 5.12, Paul uses it in the sense that all sinned in Adam. So when we see Romans 5.12, I want you to think that's where we all sinned. It's a past definitive sin in the person of Adam, our father. It's not subjectively all through our lives we sin. Now, of course, we know that's true. Once our eyes are open to the realities of the gospel and we realize that we can't self-help ourselves out of every situation, but we need a great redeemer, right? Romans 5.12, he's talking about all sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Where would we be closest to getting glory according to our own efforts? Right there. Okay. Paul, in Pauline theology, he's arguing that that sin is a past sin in Adam. So now when we read 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, I think that, you know, understanding Paul's use of all and sin, uh, we really understand what's going on here. It's It's... We fall in our first federal representative, Adam. Adam falls, and just like the New England Children's Catechism says, in Adam we fall all, right? In Adam we fall all. Now, what do we all fall short of according to 323? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? The thing that we fall short of is the glory of God. That sort of, you know, initial expectation of a glorified humanity, you know, after a, a keeping of a covenant, right? But of course that doesn't happen. Now, what does Paul mean by glory? Romans 8, 17 through 21. And if children, <coughs> then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then, of course, he goes into that passage. For I considered the sufferings of the present time, are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the Son of God, etc. Um, and then we get down to verse 30. Those whom he's predestined, he's also called. And those whom he's called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right? This means that, uh, you know, Paul's talking about the glory to come, heaven itself. That is within reach of Adam in the garden. And he fails miserably, of course. Now, I don't know why that is. That's to borrow uh, some words from Solomon. It's vanity of vanities or irrationality of irrationalities is how I would call it. Um, so calling the covenant with Adam a covenant of life or a covenant of works is biblical. Okay. Now, uh, maybe we'll just say covenant of life, right? We know that life was available to him based on Paul's use of glory and sin in the past, right? Uh, how about this idea of a covenant of works, that the operative principle whereby Adam would have laid hold of heaven is actually his personal perpetual obedience, perfect personal perpetual obedience, is what our confession says. And they're right. And so how is Adam to get to heaven? There's nothing stated in Genesis except the possibility of Adam's obedience or disobedience. Depending on what Adam did, he'd merit heaven or hell. 
All of Adam's obedience is tested in this one simple command of not eating of the fruit of the tree of good and evil. If Adam eats, he dies. If he does not eat, he lives. Later in Israel, we see this similar principle during the theocracy, and that is, uh, oh, I'm thinking of something else. Leviticus 18.5, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord, right? Uh, do this and you shall live is the basic principle that we see appear in Israel again and again, right? You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live. Do this and he shall live. Now think about Adam as the image of God. He was to image God, right? He was to do what God did. He was to think and act like God. God worked for six days and then enters into his rest. So it would be for natural, for, so it would be natural for Adam as the image of God to think about that. What does scripture say? God works and God goes into the seventh day, this eternal seventh day. There's no sun. There's no darkness on that. There's no morning and evening demarcations. It's an eternal day that's being spoken of. And I think Hebrews 4 you know, calls us to, there's still yet a Sabbath rest of God for the people of God. Um, that's what God does. God works, 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 and rests. And I would encourage you to see that as a heavenly rest. Adam's goal is he's to work, 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 rest. Right? He's to work and enter into heavenly glory like his creator God that made him in his own image. So we've seen that uh, the rest that God enters into is heaven. Um, Adam was to enter heaven by his works. Now some people at this point, uh, Norman Shepard, uh, Daniel Fuller, Daniel Fuller, Fuller Seminary, they've suggested at this point, whoa, full stop, I don't like the idea of this idea of a covenant of works. Nobody's saved by works. We're all saved by grace, which, of course, is a really good impulse starting here. Right? But once you start futzing about and saying that you need some work somewhere in this realm, suddenly, why did Jesus come becomes the first question that would pop in my mind. Right? So I want you to see that, as with most heresy, there's, there's good intentions and people who love Scripture, and that's certainly true of, you know... Uh, yeah, Dan Fuller, and sometimes we'll read a quote from John Piper where he gets dangerously close to this stuff here. Um, but, you know, it, these are things. Okay. Um, so, so this is Dan, Dan Fuller, and uh, uh, Norman Shepard would make this argument. Hey, what about Luke 17, 7 through 10, right? And that's, of course, that passage... And their argument is, hey, based on this passage, we think that the idea of Adam getting to heaven by works is unbiblical, right? Adam needs some sort of grace to, to jumpstart his way to heaven before the fall. So Luke 17, 7 to 10. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we're but unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty, right? So the argument here is, and, and by the way, it's a good argument, right? God is the big creator. We are the creation, right? There's such a vast difference in the nature of God and us. That come on, we can't earn God's heaven, right? Now, of course, He's, we can't, 
but Adam could. Eve could, right? Um, and the fact of the matter is, and this is where we come down to, what's going on? And it's true. Hey, isn't that an amazing thing that God that didn't need to create anything created somebody and invites them into his glory of his presence in heaven? Isn't that amazing? Sure. God does do that. But he does that by means of a covenant, right? And so we're looking into this covenant. It's a deal. You know, pinky promise. The pinky promise is, Adam, you've been given the mojo in creation. I've declared you good. All the way through the passage in Genesis, we see that everything's good, everything's good, everything's good. Now you out of your goodness created in my image, be like me and you'll be like me in glory, right? That's the covenant. So we shouldn't get like, hey, hats off to anybody who has a great appreciation for the distinction between the creature and the creation. That's something that's not terribly strong nowadays. But of course, God, by means of covenant, communicates to Adam that he really will be like God. Now, it doesn't make Adam God, but it means that he enters into his presence and enjoys his uh, enjoys fellowship with him. All right. Um, so notice that Adam is called to do this work as the image bearer of God. Adam is to work in covenant with God, just as the rest of creation is in covenant with God, as we saw. Adam, as the sinless, perfect image of God, was not called to do something that he was not made and prepared to do. God, by covenant, decided to give heaven to Adam if he would obey. So don't get caught up on the, the big distinction like, well, God's so high and we're so low. We weren't that low. We were glorified. We're talking about pre-fall man, right? I think it's, uh, Pastor quotes this a bunch, C.S. Lewis supposedly said, if one of us saw Adam in his unfallen glory, we would fall at his feet as though dead, right? And that's not to glorify Adam, but it's just to show the distinction between fallen humanity and man truly created in the image of God in righteousness, holiness, and etc. Okay, I know I'm really belaboring this. So why is this important? We all love Jesus, right? I've named some people that we might like, right? Um... Well, this is a quote. There's an article in there. This is homework if you're interested. Um, the second page, it's called Covenant Theology Under Attack. This is, it's a short review from Professor Meredith Klein of a book that Daniel Fuller published. Fuller published a book called uh, The Unity of the Bible in like early 90, I don't know, like 1991 or something. And here's Professor Klein uh, coming out swinging. Now, Meredith Klein was basically a bulldog for traditional covenant theology. Um, and he, there's some other things people don't like about him. You know, he was sort of a, a framework uh, guy in terms of days of creation, and that's a lot of noise for some people, and they, they block their ears. But in terms of, some have said that in the midst of much confusion concerning the doctrine of the divine covenants, perhaps Dr. Klein was one of the few people who helped sustain that in the 20th century. Maybe an overstatement, probably from one of his students, but there we go. So this is a quote from Professor Klein. He says this, If the first Adam could not earn anything, neither could the second. But if the obedience of Jesus has no meritorious value, the foundation of the gospel is gone. If Jesus' passive obedience, that is his, uh, you know, uh, receiving the wrath of God on the cross and suffering for sinners. If Jesus' passive obedience has no merit, there has been no satisfaction made for our sins. And if Jesus' active obedience has no merit, that is Jesus living 33 years of a righteous dude's life, if that has no merit, there's no righteous accomplishment to be imputed to us. 
there is then no justification-glorification for us to receive a gift of grace by faith alone, right? And so Professor Klein is making the argument that if you deny the covenant of works, what you're going to end up doing, because, of course, and forgive me, it's borderline blasphemous, but uh, uh, I, I guess we'll put a cross. I'm not going to draw a Jesus character, but the stick figure is here now, right? Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 5, all that two-Adam theology, right? There's a lot of parallels between the first Adam and the second Adam. And if it's true, as we're going to see, that the first Adam fails and the second Adam picks up where he left off, well, if the first Adam can't earn heaven, what can the second Adam do, right? Hmm. Okay. Uh, now here's a... I, I, we're not going to beat up on John Piper. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he has some, you know... Uh, here, here's just a short quote from Piper. Um, and basically, Piper denies this idea that there's a covenant of works. And, uh, you know, uh, he says this, Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly in the way that the law was meant to be fulfilled from the beginning, not by works, but by faith. So Jesus has faith. What sort of extrospective faith, outside looking faith, does Jesus have? Is he looking to himself as the only redeemer of God's elect, as the profession would have it? So there's some problems here, right? And so uh, uh, Piper says, Thus he obtained life for his people, not by wages, but by fulfilling the covenant conditions of a faithful son. Right. So he's denying this idea of a covenant of works for Jesus and a covenant of, work, uh, covenant of works for Adam and a covenant of works for Jesus. And so uh, Klein's concerns are well-founded. And you know, John Piper was a student of Dan Fuller, and John Piper says this 20 years later, and Klein was right. Okay, we're going to fast forward to Westminster Shorter Catechism number 20, okay? So basically, uh, Shorter Catechism number 12 is dealing with the green area. That's all we've talked about, right? Now, there's a whole bunch more covenants in the Bible, and we're going to lay them out. Um, not in as much detail as you might like. But what we're going to say is that the covenant of grace is Blueville. Uh, Redville, sorry. Covenant of grace is dealing with all this stuff in the red, okay? Um, and notice, I'm impressed with my math skills, it's been a long time. I think this is called a ray, right? It has a dot and an arrow. But there's a termination point, but that's because we enter into the heavenly glory that Adam was supposed to enter us into, and he failed, right? So here we go. Shorter Catechism number 20. I think you guys got it on paper. Let's read this responsibly. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the state of sin and misery and to bring them in a state of salvation by a redeemer. Now, we're not going to deal with election and Jesus, the only redeemer of God. So we're not going to get into that. We're just going to focus on this idea of covenant of grace through uh, Shorter Catechism 20 today. But I want you to see that God condescends to man by way of covenant, right? We've studied covenant before. We just look at the covenant of works, right? Adam, our covenant head, was subject to the covenant of works. He needs to obey God's law, etc. There's conditions for the covenant of works. If he did well, he'd earn heaven. If he fails, he dies. Of course, we know Adam fails. Humanity's plunged into a state of sin and misery. It's now impossible for us to please God on the basis of our own obedience. 
it's impossible for us to go to heaven due to our works. We can't keep the covenant of works. But it's still hardwired into each and every one of us. So in a very interesting sense, when we see our Mormon friends, our Jehovah's Witnesses friends, and our Muslim friends, and our, our woke friends that really have different conceptions of righteous, but they're so concerned about being righteous, you're just proving that you are what God made you to be. You're trying to work your way to heaven. But you didn't get the message that it doesn't work that way anymore. It doesn't work that way anymore. It can't. So, we've already broken it in our, in our father Adam, as we looked at it in Romans. And we continue to break God's law every day. God's requirements don't change. He can't just look the other way and let sinners into heaven. But as we said, through all covenants of God, the goal is, what is that promise all the way through the Old Testament? I will be your God. You will be my people. Right? That promise. We see the Emmanuel promise. God is with us. That is always the promise that we will get to be with God in his place. Right? So the covenant of works is still man's chief end that we want to get to heaven, but the conditions must be fulfilled before any man can receive the promise of the covenant. So that's the monkey wrench in the covenant of works. We need to get there. Like, you know, in the, in the words of... Uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. We've got to get back to the garden. Right? We, that's, uh, maybe that's not the right tune, but we got to get back to the garden. That, that's the call. Problem is, is our bus, our train, all the tickets we got, they're bankrupt. It's not going to work, right? So the issue, of course, is this. Well, therefore, a new covenant head was necessary. You know, Adam fails, right? He's th that holy place, the, the garden, right? That sanctuary of God, it's protected by you know, a flaming sword and an angel. Um, we can't get back. So this new covenant head is necessary to take care of Adam's unfinished business. Let's look at Romans 5.14. Paul says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Paul's saying that Adam was a type of the one to come, okay? Kind of interesting, right? When we think about new car models and we think, you know, ooh, this was the car that was put out at some fancy show, and then three years later we see that, right? We'd say, that's the type. Oh, or, yeah, I guess that's, never mind. I'm, I'm, I'm getting distracted. That's perfect language. Adam's a type of the one to come, right? Uh, he's uh, looking forward to, uh, to, to Jesus, right? Now, of course, this covenant head is the second Adam, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.45, of course, unpacks that really clearly, right? He calls him the second Adam, right? Um, Jesus, the second Adam, came to do all that the first Adam failed to do. He came to fulfill the conditions of the covenant. That's why he became man, so that a man might meet God's righteous requirements. We also see this in the Gospels, right? Mark 1. Uh, Luke 4, this idea that Jesus goes and he's tempted by Satan, right? Uh, he's tempted by Satan. However, you know, think about Adam's temptation. And I've probably said this before at some point, but Adam is tempted in a lush garden, right? Not lacking anything. There's food all over the place, right? It's beautiful. It's glorious. There's, it's a mountain where there's streams running down. You want some water? <laughs> You know, he lacks no good things. And Adam, I don't know how long it took Adam, three days, three years, 30 years, who knows, 
Uncle Satan, I give in, right? Jesus, of course, his temptation happens in the desert. He's 40 days hungry. It's dry, right? He's being taunted by the devil, right? And uh, Jesus, of course, is being tempted on Satan's home court. Satan has the home court advantage in a fallen, cursed world, right? That's what we see in Luke 4. Jesus has come and he's picked up the broken covenant of works that Adam couldn't keep, and Adam, uh, Jesus has come as the second Adam to do that. Jesus, we know, obeys the Father. He fulfills the covenant of works, and in doing so, he rescues us from the estate of sin and misery. Notice 519 of Romans. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, here. And then he says, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Okay? Jesus is picked up where Adam left off, and he's victorious. Now, Romans 5 is essential in understanding this. Paul's real point when we look at Romans 5 is not that we all die in Adam, although that's certainly true. His main point is seen that at the, e at the end of each verse from 19 through 21. Maybe open that up, Romans 5, 19 to 21. Notice he says, and I'll just kind of emphasize with my voice, that the ending statements in some of these sentences, his point is seen at the end of each verse from 19 to 21. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Right? Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, uh, you know, in the half that I didn't emphasize in those passages, the people of Israel knew this. They saw, you know, the stories of Abel killing people. They didn't need some great explanation about why we're all sinners, right? Um, they didn't have Anthony Robbins running around telling us to live our best life and we're just fine and we need to change our mindset. No, they're like, man, I heard about Cain. He killed Abel. And, oh, God cursed him for that, right? And Oh, yeah, well, God made a covenant with us, and we had this, uh, you know, during the time of the, the, the judges, there's the judges cycle, and we got a decent guy, and then a sucky guy comes, and it just keeps happening again. Man, we need somebody better, right? And then we got a king, and oh, the king's a nice guy, but he ain't perfect, right? So the, the, Israel does not need, they're not needing to be reminded so much of the fact that man is sinful, right? The, the big point of Romans 5 is, hey, by this man's obedience, many will be made righteous. This man's obedience, grace abounds all the more. Through this man's obedience, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through this Jesus guy. So his point, of course, is the elect are one by Christ. That is the big picture of what's going on in Romans 5. Now let's discuss the covenant of grace in more detail. God brings his elect to that chief end, by a new covenant, the covenant of grace, okay? Now, it needs to be said, like the covenant of works, there's no explicit language in the Bible that says the covenant of grace, okay? But like the covenant of works, the idea is there. The idea is there. When we talk about the covenant of grace, there's two aspects. An eternal aspect or eternal phase and a historical phase. So let's look at the eternal phase really quick. And uh, 
when we talk about the eternal phase of the covenant of grace, um, we're talking about the covenant of redemption, okay? And this was interesting to me. You know, in our tradition, if you look uh, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, shorter and larger catechisms, you won't find this language. Now, we have forever made the argument that all of our theologians have always believed it, etc. But interesting to me, uh, in the Savoy Baptist, London Baptist Confession and the Savoy Confession, I think Savoy was the Irish folks. I don't think anybody remembers. Was it French? Um, it, but basically, different iterations of the Westminster Confession held by people who were uh, not down with infant baptism, etc. They use that language in there. That that you know the covenant of redemption. It was kind of I thought that was interesting to me. And for uh, personally, I'm a fan. We should use that language. And the Reformed Baptist guys got it right there. You know, so um, that that's. Uh, but anyhow, this this language has always been about this idea of the covenant of redemption. Uh, so when we talk about that, we're talking about this eternal aspect of the covenant, whatever we call it. And at the end of the day, it's just a name. It's an agreement of the Son to purchase all those that the Father has elected. So let's look at some of the classic proof texts for the covenant of redemption. Uh, John 17, 1 through 12. And we're going to look especially at verses 2 and 4. John 17, 1 through 12, Jesus' high, high priestly prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. <laughs> yeah, that kind of glorified. Uh, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to those, to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Okay. Um, in verses 2 and 4, um, uh, here we go, I'm sorry, verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Okay. Um, now, in verse 2 and 4, when it talks about this... Uh, Oh, where am I? Jesus speaks of completing a work that the Father gave him and also giving life to the, those the Father had given him. This strongly suggests there's some kind of an agreement between the Father and the Son. Uh, and then I was mixing up passages in my head, sorry. Uh, Luke twenty-two twenty-nine. This is the sort of classic, most explicit proof text for the covenant of redemption. Um... Uh, Luke twenty two twenty nine. Whoopsie, I'm in the wrong book. Twenty two twenty nine. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. Okay, is what Jesus says. Okay, um, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, one of the alternative readings of that passage, and I don't know if your Bible has it, uh, see if there's any alternative readings on that. Uh, 29. I don't see any in my text. But, um, you know, the word used there is diathe, uh, boy, diat, 
the antithemi. I can't read English Greek, but um, uh, it's related to the idea of covenant, right? So a classic way that's been understood is this, that, uh, you know, and I covenant on you a kingdom just as my father covenanted one on me. That's a very possible reading with the language. So the father and son make a covenant in eternity is the argument of those who hold to this idea of a covenant of redemption. The condition of the covenant were to be met by Jesus. These conditions were being born as an infant, living a perfect life of obedience to God among men, suffer and die on the cross as our substitute to be buried, to raise from the dead, and to send the Holy Spirit to come to judge on the last day. You think about Paul's language that, you know, according to the scriptures, you know, what is it? 1 Corinthians 15, talking about short summary of what the gospel is. And a lot of that, according to the scriptures, it dips back into all of these redemptive historical acts of Jesus, right? Uh, the incarnation, perfect obedience, his propitiatory atonement, right? All that stuff. So as Jesus meets the conditions of the covenant, he receives a kingdom, right? What does Jesus receive? Well, he receives heaven itself, okay? Now he receives heaven itself and he shares that with his people. Just like Adam receives hell itself and shares that with his peace kingdom, his people, okay? But we're going to see that, you know, God doesn't act on that immediately, okay? All right. Okay. Uh, yeah. So that's sort of the uh, um, eternal phase of the covenant of grace. And that's, uh, admittedly, that's not as uh, as clear as, as we might hope, but uh, it's... Uh, if we had more time, we could unpack it. I'd have to do a little more homework, to be honest. But um, there's covenant of redemption. Next, we're going to look at the covenant of grace in its historical phase. That is the application of redemption in the here and now as humans hear it and see it and have God reveal it to us. Today, we're going to look at uh, the conditions for the covenant of grace in the historical phase. That is, what is required of God's elect, right? John 6, Jesus uh, is questioned. You remember that big question, John 6, 28 through 29? They come to him and they say, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God. Believe in the one whom he sent, right? So what's required of God's elect, of course, is faith. Okay, that is, that is the requirement. So thus far we've seen that uh, Christ entered into a covenant of works with the Father and that Christ fulfilled the covenant of works on our behalf. Today, we'll look at the covenant of grace as it's applied in history. So first, we're going to start out in the Old Testament, okay? And this is, Ed beat us to the punch about an hour ago. But um, in the Old Testament, where do we first see grace? Where do we first see grace? Ed said, well, God gave them clothing, right? God clothes them. Um, he doesn't kill them, right? Um, you know, really think about that. If we look at... Genesis uh, 3, you know, God could have bought final judgment on us right after Genesis 3.12, right? 3.12 says, the man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Genesis 3.13 could have absolutely rightfully read, and we'd never have the opportunity to read it if it read this, and God cast Adam and Eve and the serpent into the lake of fire, the end. Really? And that's why it's freeing for Christians, because we have a perspective, Right? The perspective is, I don't deserve any good thing. But God reveals his goodness to all creatures all the time through a covenant of common grace, right? 
we're going to see that God makes covenant with Noah and he doesn't suspend his entire creation and give us our just desserts. Rather, rather he clothes Adam, right? Hmm, okay. He, he gives Adam a promise, right? Rather than final judgment, we find this in 3.15 of Genesis. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, right? He's speaking to the serpent, right? And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, right? This early preaching of the gospel lays out the tension that we see run throughout Genesis. There's the children of God and there's the children of this world, right? There's the seed of the serpent, there's the seed of the women, woman. And the weird thing is, is they come from the same folks. We have Abel, seed of the woman, right? We have Cain, seed of the, the serpent, and he's seeking and pulls off, snuffing out a good portion of the seed of the woman at that point, right? Now, of course, it's promising more than just the tension between the offspring, but also he's talking about a future victorious warrior who will come and do battle against Satan, and he won't be like Adam and fail. Rather, he's going to pull it off. And, of course, that is the only redeemer of God's elect, the Lord Jesus. Now, the promise here is great. Not all men are going to be Satan's seed. There's going to be tension. There's going to be struggle. There's going to be strife. Humanity is going to go on. Adam has to work by the sweat of his brow. Eve is going to have tremendous pain in childbirth. People are going to die. The history of the world, this is weird, and I, we don't think about it as moderns, but we don't have a lot of babies die. We don't. We go to hospitals. We have help. We have kids born premature 25, 30 weeks. Somebody knows the numbers. How many weeks? Come on, Paul. But the point is, is, is it's, it's, it's relatively unheard of. In traditional cultures, you celebrate 100 days. Kid made it. A year, I think they're going to be with us, right? People died, and that's the reality for Eve. She sees, wow, man, God's promised that there's going to be this great warrior come, and right, Abel, uh, I'm sorry, Cain, uh, his name, <laughs> when, when Eve gives birth to Cain, uh, what does she say? She says, see, I've begotten a man, the Lord right? And then she calls her secondborn meaningless. <laughs> Hebel is his name, or Abel. It's, it's close to, to meaningless. But So who knows? I, maybe I'm reading into Eve's anticipations there, but you know, hey, I, I, I'd want to take that promise a lot sooner than later too. God, I've had two of these kids and this is not fun, right? Adam's complaining about his back, right? Um, this is not the glory that we anticipated, right? But anyhow, God, God sees fit even through the mess of creation that he has promised that not everybody is going to be uh, a Satan's child, right? Human history will continue, and God's going to see that happen. Next, we see sacrifices very early in the Old Testament. Sacrifices, of course, we read the book of Hebrews, sacrifices all point forward to the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The very first sacrifice, and going back to Ed's point, it's performed by God himself when he clothes Adam and Eve with animal skins, right? Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Hebrews 11, and also uh, Genesis 4.4, by faith Abel brought an animal offering and God was pleased. Genesis 4.4, and Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Hebrews 11.4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. 
through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, although he died, he still speaks. Noah offers sacrifices, right? Genesis 8, 20 through 21. Noah builds an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and he offers burnt offerings on an altar. And when God and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I've done. So at a very early time, God's people knew, and we don't know exactly how they got this revelation, but somehow they knew that salvation was through a substitute, right? Things ain't right. Better go kill this animal. God, you pleased? Okay, right? By sacrificing, they're confessing that their salvation was not due to personal effort or personal morality. By sacrificing, they were declaring their faith in the Christ to come, the mediator of the covenant. Now, we also see explicit covenants in the Bible. So we've got... There's this idea that, right, hey, God, uh, <clears throat> there's the, the proto-euangelion, the early preaching of the gospel in Genesis, that there is going to become a champion. He's going to crush the serpent's head. There's going to be final eschatological battle. Satan's going to lose. The, the, the one to come is going to win. And the promise of I will be your God and you'll be my people will come to pass. But um, this special grace covenant, which we're calling the covenant of grace, the second covenant, I think the confession says, I want you to see that it's one. There's one covenant of grace. Now, there's different iterations. There's a historical unfolding. And the idea that I want to leave you with, or introduce to you anyhow, is a rose petal. Right? You see the bud, and I've never cut it open to look, but I've been told that within a rose bud, all of the petals are there in form. But over time, it unfolds, right? And that's the one covenant of grace, unfolding redemptive historically throughout the scripture. And we're going to kind of look at some of this, uh, it might not be as satisfying as you like. So we see, for example, in the cases of Noah, Abraham, Moses, and the New Covenant, right? So we'll cover these at breakneck speed. So when we get to the covenant with Noah, after God destroys the world that then was, that's a whole fascinating uh, statement, the world that then was, you know, with Noah, we see a whole creation, you know, uh, there's creation, destruction, redemption, all that's involved there with the Noah account. Um, uh, we, we see um, that he makes a covenant with creation, right? Genesis 9, 8 through 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, and it is for every beast of the earth, right? Hmm. Everything. It's very broad. It's not talking about God's elect. It's talking about all of creation, okay, this covenant. I establish my covenant with you that I will never again, uh, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you and for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. 
and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature and all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that's on the earth. Now, I want you to think about this covenant. And, uh, you know, some interpreters have said that this idea of uh, the bow, uh, actually, it's, maybe that's wrong. Uh, well, let's, let's talk about this really quick. Uh, the language, rainbow, I, I want you to think of bow and arrow. It's a thing, right? Um, a bow and arrow, it, it could be facing that way. It, it could be facing this way. But of course, how does a rainbow work? Right? Um, Professor Klein and others have made the argument that the imagery of the bow, which could be seen as a weapon, they face upwards, right? And so God is making a maledictory covenant, a promise that he'll be cursed if he breaks this, right? So the, the idea of the rainbow in the sky is a reminder, God, you're not going to do that again, at least not in that way. You're not going to destroy the earth by flood. Um, that might be a fanciful read. I'm not willing to fall on my sword or my arrow on that one. But um, the, uh, the idea is that you know, this is a reminder to God. I'm not going to curse my people in that way. I'm not going to curse all of them. So we see that when we look at the Noahic covenant, it's a covenant that starts early on in Genesis after the flood. And we saw several times every creature of the earth, all people, right? So it's a universal covenant. We call this a common grace covenant. And all we mean to say by that is God is going to keep this world functioning. He's not going to judge it according to its sins for a purpose, okay? Um, and so when we look at Jesus, Jesus in the Gospels, he says, you know, do, doesn't the rain fall on the field of the righteous and the unrighteous alike? All that kind of stuff. Um, that's the common grace covenant. We see that in the covenant with Noah. Okay. Yet notice it's with all the earth. Yeah. Um, cool. Now we see evidence of this covenant by the fact that rain falls, again, on the fields of the righteous as well as the unrighteous. God blesses. Christians and non-Christians alike. Bill Gates is one of the richest men on earth. Right? I don't think he trusts and loves the Lord Jesus. I hope someday he does. Right? Um, and also our, our conceptions of what blessing is might need some fine-tuning if we get too excited about people with money being blessed. But anyhow, um, the purpose of the Common Grace Covenant, though, is to preserve humanity the coming of the seed to come. Remember that promise that there's going to be battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent? It happens on this play, uh, the stage of common grace, right? God is not going to uproot, uh, you know, the, the, there needs to be a field out of which the, the wheat and the tares can grow. And that field, of course, is called common grace. After Christ's ascension into heaven, the common grace world continues in order for God's elect children to be gathered into his kingdom. When God's elect are all gathered, then the common grace world will end, and God will again judge the world. But Second Peter tells us that it'll be by fire, right? Yeah. Well, Peter says, but by the same word, the same word that God uses to not curse the world with water again, he... Uh, he withholds his judgment. The same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So notice with our common grace uh, realm here, it's a line segment, right? There's a dot and a dot. There's a beginning point and an end point, okay? 
Now we know when the beginning point is. It's God initiates this covenant after judging the world that then was. Right? He says, I'm going to have this world continue. Um, but I want you to see a couple things. It does end. It ends at the parousia, at the arrival of the king of glory, when the kingdom of our God and of our Christ becomes one with the kingdoms of this world, right? When heaven and earth become one. That will be the terminus of the common grace covenant. Now, notice really quick, we've, we've talked about how, you know, the theocracy is present in the garden and in Israel and in heaven, Okay. In Israel, the sort of common grace principle is kind of put on pause, right? This is the world where, hey, if you, you know, it's within the, uh, the Israeli theocracy in the Old Covenant from the time of Moses until the ascension of Christ where sin is punished by the state, right? Um, homosexuality, they should be killed. Notice the context during the Israelite theocracy, right? A man's with his mom, his stepmom, or whatever. They should be killed. All of those sort of dire, you know, death being carried out on people for immoral behavior, that happens during the theocracy, right? Now, when we get to the Apostle Paul in Corinthians, and he's talking about really gross relationships, like a man has his father's wife, what does Paul say? Paul say, well, we know what to do from the theocracy. You better bump them off. Paul says, kick him out of the church. Okay, So, you know, uh, when we talk about the, the authority of the church, the authority of the church is ministerial, that is, we serve people, and declarative. We declare God's word on these things. There is no sword in the church. Well, you're saying, hang on a second, there's a sword of the Spirit. Uh, but no, uh, when we talk about the sword in the theocracy, I mean, we're talking, it's the sword, man. And why is that? Because this is a picture of what heaven is like. Heaven is the place where sin is not tolerated. It's not existent, right? Now, of course, we know that within the theocracy, it, it doesn't plan out because the whole point of Israel and the theocracy is to show us, hey, there's no perfect prophet. Moses ain't the guy. There's no perfect priest. Aaron's not the guy. There's no perfect king. David's a pretty swell guy. Scripture says that he's a man after God's own heart, but He's broken every one of God's laws, right? The goal of the theocracy is to show us again, our confession calls it a, <coughs> a church under age, um, that, that we, we need someone who is a perfect prophet, priest, and king. And of course, that's the Lord Jesus. Um, all right. Abrahamic covenant, okay? When we get to the Abrahamic covenant, that's, we're going to just, right? Abrahamic covenant is going to be pretty much what we operate off of here. Um, from here on, we'll talk about different administrations of the one covenant of grace. And I got 10 minutes. Okay. The one covenant of grace, Abrahamic covenant. Contrary to the covenant made with all of creation, the Abrahamic covenant is about God's special grace. This is grace that God only has for his people. It's an application of the work of Christ for his people and taking them to heaven. We can see this, that it's an expression of the one covenant of grace in Genesis 15, 1 through 21. Okay. Um, yeah. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, 
you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, the stars, the heavens, if you're able to number them. And he said, So shall your offspring be. <coughs> and he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you a land to possess. And Abram says, But, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them out over against each other. But he didn't cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Then the sun had gone down, and it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the, all the Gergesites, the termites, everybody. Okay, um, sorry, that was... Notice what's going on here. When a covenant is cut or made, one party would act out the judgment that would follow upon them if they did not keep their oath. So all these animals are cut, right? And normally what would happen is you would have both parties walk through these hacked up bits of animal to demonstrate if I break the terms of the treaty or the covenant, this is what I hope happens to me. Now, of course, Abraham doesn't go marching through there. No, he doesn't. God, who Hebrews says is a consuming fire, he goes through in this fiery floating pot, right? So in Genesis 15, it's God symbolized by a smoking fire pot and blazing torch that acts out the judgment that would come to pass if he did not keep his word. So it is a self-maledictory oath. God is saying, if I don't keep the terms of the covenant, what happens to these animals ought to happen to me, right? So God is taking upon himself in the covenant of grace the curses of the covenant, if he, of course, breaks it. God's saying, if I don't keep my word to bless you with all that I've promised, let me be like these dead animals. Therefore, the blessings promised to Abraham are a certain gift that God's grace will come to pass. And notice, what does it say about Abraham? How does Abraham get these benefits? It says in the text, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. Okay. Abraham doesn't say, Oh God, I'll keep your covenant. What must I do? <laughs> no, he believes God. So um, I think I had more on here that I wanted to say. Uh, let's look at uh, you know this one covenant of grace, this special grace covenant, the covenant of grace. Uh, yeah, we're going to see a whole bunch of stuff happen here. Um, and so I, you know, when we get to the Mosaic covenant, I do want you to see. We can't get into it tonight, but um, that with anybody that we see in heaven, of course, is saved only by this one covenant of grace. 
However, as it pertains to the people of Israel, that church under age, as our confession calls it, uh, Israel had stipulations, right? There was this unconditional covenant that we see that God promises, this self-maledictory oath that God makes with Abraham that I will keep the terms of covenant. I'll promise that your, your children be the, you know, more than the sand of the sea, all that stuff. And we see in Galatians 3.29 that by us having faith in Christ, that promise God makes to Abraham is ours, right? That, that we are children of Abraham by faith. Nonetheless, within Israel, although any Israelite that trusted in the Savior to come is in heaven, nonetheless, we see that the works principle is present there, that they can lose Israel, right? That, that as a nation, a holy nation, there's, that, there's a covenant of works principle involved there, okay? Not in terms of getting away to heaven, no, 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 but in terms of having the theocracy, right? And that dies. Okay, um, other things. The Davidic... Uh, covenant. We're not going to get to that. <coughs> but what does that show us? That shows us that God uh, is a king, and he sends a king. Uh, so often when we think about kingdoms, especially as Americans, we think, oh, the oppression. We wrote letters against the king. They were screwing us over. In the Bible, when we have a king, the king goes out in the spring, and he fights. He defends his people and defend and defeats their enemies. And we see, of course, that David fails in that regard. When he's out, supposed to be in the spring defending his people and conquering their enemies, he's stealing another man's wife. He's murdering his best soldiers, right? We need to see that, hey, kingship's a thing, but we need a better king. It's the Lord Jesus, right? So that's the Davidic kingship. And then we get to the, uh, the new covenant. And um, when we talk about the new covenant, it's not like a whole new thing is popping out like, hey, okay, here's... Here's Jeremiah 33 or whatever, 31. Like, um, it like, oh, a new thing, right? What I want you to see, and this is unfortunate if you if you have questions about that, because uh, there's not time. But um, what I want you to see is it's new, not in the sense of it's like made whole cloth out of something new, but rather it is new in contrast to this, right? When we talk about the old covenant, we're talking about you know God's covenant with the nation of Israel. When Jeremiah is talking about a new covenant, he's talking about nothing other than that one covenant of grace revealed at the garden, revealed through Abraham, revealed through David. It's the one covenant of grace whereby sinners who come to God in faith and say, the sacrifice that Jesus made, I believe it was for me, and that his work as a prophet, exposing the word of God to us, I believe it through him. His work of a priest, where he actually takes the wrath of God for me, he is the one, that flaming torch that goes through the bits of animals. I believe that was for me. And he, of course, provides me a very righteousness. And he's my, he's my king. He does defend me and my enemies. And he won't let me down. He will not oppress me. He goes before me. And he's going to bring me into that eternal land. He's going to bring heaven to earth. And he's going to bring me to that place. And he calls me not to have a bow and an arrow but to have an open tongue and say, here I am, O Lord, where would you send me? Neighbor, you, you know Jesus? Right. That's covenant theology in a nutshell. I didn't even give you a definition of covenant, but I don't think it matters because we've seen what it does. God works through covenant to bring heaven to earth through means of a redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ 
takes upon himself the unfinished business of Adam in the garden. He fulfills it perfectly and gifts unto us heaven so that we can be happy and we can love God and our neighbor. We can glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's covenant theology in a nutshell. Cool. Any questions or should we pray and have a good night? I know that was a lot and there's a lot more. Um, Okay, let's pray. Father, we give thanks. Uh, you know, Lord, in some ways this is a lot. Um, and sometimes we, we wonder, man, the, the simple gospel, why is it so complicated? You do, of course, present to us the simplicity of uh, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. But Father, you tell us in so many different ways. You condescend to us and speak to us in things we can't understand. But some things are admittedly hard, uh, Father. We pray that you would bless us as we spend a life of looking at your words and learning about our Savior, learning about ourselves, and uh, learning to praise your name. We love you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. Thank you guys, thank you.